Well, good morning, everybody. Um, like Adam said, my name is Anthony. Um, my wife, Sarah, and I are members here at HCC. Um, and just want to, if you're, if this kind of like maybe the first time you've been here or, or you've been checking HCC out for a little bit, um, just want to encourage you that you are, you're in a very, very special place this morning. Um, this, the, the people here are the real deal. Um, they really love Jesus, and they really want to serve you and come alongside you. Um, so if, if you're in the market for a church, you're just trying to find a place to fit in, um, this is a place that the Lord has really used um, to, to just like radically change my life. So I just want to invite you to stick around afterwards, not run off and get to know somebody. And I appreciate you this morning giving me your time. Uh, so if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's towards the beginning of your Old Testament. When you get there, um, you're going to see that this is a pretty familiar story. Whether you've grown up as like a churched person or an unchurched person, it's the David and Goliath story. It seems like um, our entire kind of society resonates with the themes of the David and Goliath story. You know, we, we love the underdog. It's usually what we think of when you think of David and Goliath, right? Like movies like Rocky, uh, Rudy, even Lord of the Rings, right? Like the Hobbits, they're underdogs. Um, so many stories that we love have these underdog elements in them. It's like somebody that's small and they overcome some kind of big, overwhelming odds. And I'll kind of give you two specific examples that stood out to me, kind of to gauge how society usually thinks about this story. Uh, the first interesting example I found was from a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He's like a popular podcaster, if you've heard of him. Um, he wrote a book called David and Goliath. Haven't read the book, but um, he has a TED Talk on YouTube. He retells the story of David and Goliath, and he gets to the end of it, and the point for him is that Goliath really wasn't that big the whole time and that David just needed to kind of find like that warrior ethos within to overcome. So that's kind of one way we think about it. Um, another way, maybe kind of like, a, like the, the hyper-spiritualized route, maybe you've seen the movie Facing the Giants. Um, in that movie, there's a, a coach and he's having a hard life and there's a football team and I'm not kidding. They are up against the state championship team called the Giants. And it all comes down to this little kicker named David who prays and God moves the wind and David scores the winning field goal. And everybody goes home and, and finds their dreams and, and everything's great. So that's, that's kind of the two spectrums we usually think of with David and Goliath. Um, and I think these stories, like as inspiring as they are, they miss the point of the actual biblical account of David and Goliath because they're all very human-centric. Um, you know, the message is, be the David you were created to be, dig deep in there, kill your giants, overcome. And I'm not saying that as we read this that it's wrong to be like David. Absolutely, we should be like David. Um, but we're going to see all that David really does is just believe that God is who he says that he is. And that he will act to glorify himself. And then David just acts accordingly out of that belief. So 
here's kind of the big point before we get into the text. Um, the big, big takeaway is that I want you to see that God's committed to displaying his glory despite the failings of weak, sinful, and scared people. And he displays that in the clearest way possible in the gospel. The story is not at all about our ability to do great things. This story should drive us straight to Jesus and his cross. And that's ultimately what you and I need more today than a motivational talk. Um, I know in my own life right now, I feel kind of like the waves are crashing down. Sarah and I had a baby a couple weeks ago, and um, they're at the hospital right now. So when I leave here, that's where I'll be going. But, you know, he's two weeks old, and uh, so all this stuff going on, like watching the doctors examine him putting tubes and, and medicine in him, and I'm just sitting there like, he is two weeks old, and I am completely powerless to do anything. Like, how am I going to get him to the rest of his life? Um, maybe some of you are overwhelmed this morning, right? Like you're trying to find work, and you can't find anything. Um, or you've got a sick child yourself, or you're a single mom, or you're a foster parent trying to foster children who are not yours and be the best parent that you can possibly be, or you're considering missions and you, you, you're looking at the cost and can I do this? Ultimately, to give you like a motivational pep talk would just crush you. So you don't need that this morning. So as we look at this, I want you to just think through this question. Do you face the challenges in your life as a person who is victorious in Christ? Or are you crushed under the weight of trying to hold it all together yourself? And then a follow-up question is, if you could live boldly, if you could live victorious in Christ, knowing that God himself was permanently in your corner forever, then why wouldn't you want to live like that? So let's pray, and then we'll look at 1 Samuel 17. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this passage and these people that are here. God, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see things that we can't see on our own and that you would give us understanding and that we would be humbled underneath your word, Jesus. Um, if there's people here who are not saved, that you would just radically alter their lives and save them. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen. So let's read the first 11 verses. Chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went out before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. 
So before we unpack this, let's do some kind of contextual work. Um, so you got your Bible, right? The Old Testament. So back in Genesis, God creates the whole world. Everything is good, but mankind chooses to rebel, go their own way. God curses that disobedience, that sin with death. Death enters the world, but God's not done. He promises that he's going to send a savior, somebody who's going to come, crush the head of the accuser that tempted and led mankind astray and redeemed the world. God also begins revealing himself in covenantal relationships with people. He reveals himself to Noah uh, when he floods the earth to purge it of mankind's rebellion. And then he reveals himself to a man named Abraham. When he reveals himself to Abraham, he promises Abraham that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that the whole world is going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants, and that they're going to inherit a promised land. Well, those descendants end up being Israel. Israel uh, ends up spending some time in bondage in Egypt, where God raises up a man named Moses, and then God miraculously grabs Israel out of slavery through the ten plagues, takes them, draws them out into the promised land, gives them the law, makes them his covenantal people. Israel just continue to mess things up over and over and over. They sin, they fall into sin, they cry out, God rescues them. This goes on and on and on. Eventually, Israel says, we would really like a king, like all the other nations around us. And God says, you guys aren't going to like that like you think you are. If you have a king, he's just going to lord it over you. Israel says, no, we want it. So God tells Samuel the prophet, okay, go ahead and give him a king. So Samuel anoints a man named Saul. Saul seems like he's a pretty brave kind of warrior king. He ends up being super disobedient. God revokes the throne from him and says, Samuel, go choose somebody else. So Samuel goes and finds David. David, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, is the youngest of his brothers, gets anointed with God's spirit, and he's going to sit on the throne of Israel one day. So that's kind of where we are. And in the background of all of that, you've got the army of the Philistines who've been slowly just kind of like creeping into Israel's territory. So now in verses one through three, you've got Israel and they're locked in this battle against the Philistines. Philistines is kind of gaining more ground into Israel's turf. And now they're squaring off in this place called the Valley of Allah, right? There's a, there's a mountain on either side. Israel's up on one mountain. Philistines are up on another mountain with the valley floor down below. Verses four through seven, the Philistines decide, you know, it's time to send out the big guns. So they pick a guy, they call him their champion, Goliath, and they send him out, and it gives his height there, and, and scholars kind of look at that height that's given in cubits, and based on some different readings of the manuscripts, they speculate that, it, that Goliath was anywhere from six and a half feet all the way to 11 feet, which, like, not to minimize, like, that's big anyway. Like, if he's six and a half feet, that's a big guy, but if all the way up to 11 feet, also big. He's, he comes out, He's imposing. He's got this heavy bronze armor on. He's got this massive spear. He's got a guy carrying his own shield. It's intimidating, to say the least. Um, in verse 8, you know, he comes out, and he's looking for this, this challenge, and he starts mocking and taunting Israel. He says, I want somebody to fight me one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and back in, in ancient times, that kind of would have been like a duel. Like, we've seen duels, like in movies and, and history books. This, this practice of hey, you send your best guy and I send my, my best guy out and whoever wins would be the one who's like the most favored by the gods. Also sounds like Goliath knows that Saul isn't the best king. So he's like, 
I'm a Philistine. You guys serve Saul. Like this battle is going to be easy. So he's taunting them. He's challenging them. And in verse 9, after he taunts Israel, he sets the stakes for his challenge. He, he essentially says, look, if your chosen guy kills me, then the Philistines will give up and we will submit to Israel. But if I kill your chosen guy, then Israel gives up and serves the Philistines. Simple as that. Seems pretty clear cut, right? Clear cut odds. Um, but if you take into consideration the rest of the context of 1 Samuel, there's a tone of defiance underneath what Goliath is saying. All throughout 1 Samuel, the Philistines have continually seen acts of God's power on display over and over. They've attacked Israel. They've done something. God's acted in a mighty way to curse the Philistines. And so by Goliath being this like bold and brash and coming out, he's essentially challenging Israel to this duel of the gods. But he's not just challenging Israel. He's challenging God himself. It's, it's almost like he's saying, okay, Israel, like, let's see if God will act for you right now. So let's just let's pause for a second and kind of think through, use your imagination a little bit. Put yourself there in the battle in the Israelite army. Right? You're, you're an Israelite, so you've, you've grown up just like immersed in the Torah and you, the teaching. You've heard all these miraculous stories of God rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. You know what he's done. Um, maybe you even yourself have kind of lived through something like that or you've heard from a family member or a friend, an instance of God acting in some miraculous, mighty way, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, based on what everyone said, what you've seen yourself, that your God is the God of the universe. Like you, you have good reason to believe that. And so you're standing there in the Israelite army, and then here comes this, this guy out, right? He's, he's massive. That's fair. We'll grant that. He's a big imposing, intimidating guy, but it's just one guy, right? Like the Philistines are still terrified. Like they're not coming down from the mountain either. They're sending the big guy. So if you're standing there, you have all that knowledge, all that experience, surely you would look at the guy next to you and be like, what are we doing? Like it's, he's big, but it's one guy. Like we know who God is, right? So let's just go out there. Let's kill this guy and get it over with. God is bigger than him, right? That's, that's kind of at least what i would hope I would do in that situation. Or maybe you're Saul and you've messed up your kingship so bad at this point that you're willing to do anything to like to prove that you deserve to be on the throne, right? Like try to earn your spot back, but nobody in this army seems to do that. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So they look at Goliath they hear his taunts, they see how big he is, and they become dismayed and greatly afraid. They lose their courage, their hope, and they're scared to death all in one moment. It's like in one moment when things look huge and intimidating and overwhelming, they just completely forget who God is and what he's done up to that point. It's like they forgot that, that he's, he's been there the whole time. It's really easy to from our perspective, to look at this story and, and kind of point the finger at these guys and be like, why, why wouldn't they do something? But I think that's us a lot of times, isn't it? Like, we can, we can talk a pretty big game. Or we know a lot of the Bible. We've got a lot of, some of us read, like, theology books. 
uh, or we're, we're faithful church attendants, we're here all the time. But then one huge imposing circumstance comes along and we just kind of lose it. It's like we forget that God even exists. You know, we're told in the New Testament by James and Peter that trials, God's using them to refine our faith, not to strip it and crush it. They're supposed to have the effect on us, not of, of unraveling us, but of, of making us more firm. C.S. Lewis kind of had an experience like this where he felt like he was coming undone, but it was, it was actually his faith being refined. Uh, he wrote a book. It's called A Grief Observed. It's a really good book. Um, he wrote it after he'd been married for four years and his wife died. And it's a very honest book. Um, he asks a lot of honest questions. He's very vulnerable. And in a couple sections, he starts to realize that uh, the faith that he thought that he had was just pure imagination. Um, the, the, the trial of losing his wife kind of forced him to ask some serious questions about himself and what he claimed to believe. He writes this. He says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death for you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you first discover how much you really trusted it? If my house collapsed at one blow, that is because it's a house of cards. The faith which took these things, things like suffering, trials, pain, death, into account was not faith but imagination. I thought I trusted the rope until it mattered to me whether it would bear me. Now it matters and I find I didn't. If my house was a house of cards, the sooner it was knocked down, the better, and only suffering could do it. So what Lewis is saying is that it's, it's really easy to claim that you have faith in God. It's easy for it to be talk, right? But when life starts getting hard, like I'm talking like, re, like not just like I, I didn't get that parking spot I wanted or like uh, a bill was overdue or something like that. Like when it, it gets like really hard, like there's a, a challenge in your face that it's either this challenge has to move or I'm, I'm done, I'm going to get crushed, then you might find out that the faith that you thought you had the whole time was, was fraudulent. And Lewis says he's glad that God used his suffering. He used his trial, this, this imposing thing, to knock down his house of cards and give him real faith, not just head knowledge. And so right now in the story, Israel's house of cards is getting knocked down. They're realizing that maybe they don't actually believe in the God that they say they do. So we're going to keep going and we're going to find out what they do with that. But before we get there, let's put a, put a pin in Israel and we get a scene change in verses 12 through 15. Now David was the son of an Ephathrite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistines came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So we get a scene change. Remember, David got introduced back in chapter 16. And he's been anointed the king. He's been filled with God's spirit. 
but he's not king yet. He's kind of just been working behind the scenes. He's a shepherd. His brothers are off at war. So he's been kind of doing that while this is going on in the background. While David's working as a shepherd, giant battles raging. Goliath, we're told, keeps coming up and giving his challenge. He says he does it morning and evening. Imagine being in the Israelite camp for 40 days, morning and evening, and hearing that challenge and nobody doing anything about it. You're just trying to sleep and there's just this giant man in the valley just yelling, like, come and fight me. And nobody's doing anything. Surely at some point, somebody would just try to shut this guy up and nobody does. Verse 17 through 19, uh, David's dad gives him some supplies to deliver to his brothers. He says, David, take these, go check in on them, see how they're doing. And then David gets to the battle in verse 20. It says, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. So David gets there, and it seems like he gets there like right in the heat of the battle. It seems like Israel's finally about to do something. They've left their perch. Philistines have left their perch, kind of pressing up against each other, going out. Israel's shouting the battle cry. They're up in each other's faces, and Goliath comes out, right? It's like, all right, battle's on, but then here comes Goliath, verse 24. Or verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So it turns out Israel's just all talk again. They're up. They're about to fight. Here comes Goliath. They're afraid. They're starting to lose hope. Verse 25 And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. So they're starting to lose hope. They're like, this guy, he's going to be the ruin of us. We're done for. And there's talk of a reward that starts to kind of circulate in verse 25. It says, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So it's gotten so bad to the point now that there's a reward out, right? Nobody will do anything. And so there's a reward that Saul's going to give the guy that finally kills Goliath. He's going to give him a lot of money. He's going to give him his daughter's hand in marriage. And he's going to make the guy's family free in Israel, free presumably from like taxes, maybe even give him like a place of nobility. So there's, there's some incentive. It seems like David's a little interested in this reward. He hears it. He's like, okay, And in verse 26, here's his response. He says, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David's interested. But if you look at his question, he's he's interested more in killing Goliath than for just the material gain. Look how he words his question. He says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David recognizes that it's not just win or loss of a battle at this point. It's Israel, and by extension, God's name that's on the line. 
David recognizes that there's reproach if Israel gives in now and loses to Goliath. Shame, public embarrassment, humiliation on Israel and on God's good name. Israel's unwillingness to fight Goliath is going to send this massive message to the rest of the world that, hey, there's, there might be a God in Israel, but it doesn't seem like he's very involved. And David's like, we, somebody has to do something about this. So he recognizes that. And then notice what he points out about Goliath. It sounds just kind of like an, an ancient insult, right? You, the uncircumcised Philistine. But, but David knows that Goliath is not part of God's covenant people. What do I mean by that? Well, circumcision was the sign given to Abraham and his descendants that promised them that they had God's covenantal love and status as God's people forever. And so David says, Goliath is an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't have that, right? He's not under God's covenantal protective love like we are. And then he points out that Goliath's defiance is against the living God. He's, Goliath is, is, is defying the actual living God of Israel. And David's point is this. Like, who is this guy? And why are we so afraid? He's like, come on, guys. Don't you realize that Goliath should be terrified of us because we're the ones who are under God's protective wing? And David realizes there's, there's nothing to be scared. All these people are losing hope, losing their minds. And, but David seems like he, he gets it. But then his brother's here that he's asking questions. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against the David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. So Eliab is a little confrontational. He's like, come on, David, why'd you leave your sheep? I know why you're here, right? Like you just want to see some big, exciting battle. You don't want to stay in your lane as the shepherd. That's why you're here. And you think that like Eliab would see David and kind of, you know, try to like one up him like, oh, my little brother, like I'm an only child. I don't have siblings, so I don't know what this is like. I just I get everything all the time as an only child. So but as as Eliab, you would think you would be there and would be like, my little brother's more brave than I am. I'm not going to let that happen. Right. But he doesn't. He's he sees David. He's trying to rally everyone. And Eliab's like, let's pump the brakes. It's like as soon as David like, understands how big and real that God is and what's at stake, there's opposition. And that has implications for us, right? You all who are trying to live missionally, who are trying to, to, to live your life like Jesus is actually alive, will probably start to encounter a lot of the same opposition. And it'll probably come even from your own family. Maybe you start talking about going overseas to, to spread the gospel. Maybe you just start talking about this radical commitment you have because Jesus has changed your life to see God's kingdom spread in the vicinity around you. Or maybe like you need to go to a hard place or do a hard thing or do something that looks counter to the way the rest of the world is running. And the head shaking just starts. Right, especially when we start talking about missions, there's always pushback. It's like here in the Bible Belt, we love to give missions. We'll give to missions all day long. We'll talk about how great missions are, 
but you know, when it comes down to somebody's actual like son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter, and they start talking about the Great Commission, the reality of who Jesus is, and the need to take the gospel, you, people start to say things like this. Oh, you just, you just want an adventure right now, right? You'll settle down eventually, or you don't know like, like what life is, is really about, right? You just, you just want to have fun. You'll get it one day. Or you need to get a good job, right? Like you'll never make money doing that. Or it's too dangerous over there. You need to stay here. Um, or here's my favorite. We need missionaries right here in America. That's never, until you start talking about missions, then suddenly there's, we need missionaries everywhere. Um, but Eliab seems uncomfortable that David is radically committed to bringing honor and glory to God's name. And that kind of commitment is so uncomfortable because it exposes the lack of commitment that we ourselves often have. You start living like this, like taking Jesus seriously, taking his call to to go spread the gospel seriously, to step out of your comfort zone, and it rubs right up against this comfortable kind of like easy believism Western Christianity that we've kind of constructed for ourselves. And it does that because it creates this like dichotomy. It says that like God won't be taken as a side quest on your way to the American dream or your, your way to make a million dollars or something like that. It's either you're all in or you're all out. And so David is saying like, this is who I know that God is. I trust him. I trust his character. I trust what he's done. And I'm going to get in this fight, Eliab. Like you can, you can sit on the sidelines in unbelief or fear, or you can believe it and join me. And so I think Eliab is a really interesting character for us to consider. There's a challenge there, a question. When other people are fired up about the gospel and committed to see it spread, how do you react? Do you, do you help encourage them? Do you help fan that fire and do everything you can to see, to see them take the gospel and to partner with them? Or do you try to put the fire out so that your own lack of commitment doesn't get exposed? I love David's response. He just kind of shakes it off in verse 29. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He's like, what, Eliab? Like, why are you getting so fired up? Why are you so upset? And so he keeps it up. He keeps up his questioning. He keeps up his, his insistence that Goliath's not really that big until he finally gets the king's attention, right? Saul's the one that should have left his throne and been out there fighting in the battlefield the whole time. But he seems really comfortable too. So he finally gets an audience with Saul, And then he says this to Saul in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. So he gets this audience, let no man's heart fail. And you can see where David foreshadows Christ already, right? David say, okay, I'll go into the valley all by myself and do this. Don't be afraid. I'm going to fight for you. Saul this time doesn't pull out the motive card like Eliab did. He pulls out the age card, verse 33. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. In other words, David, you're a kid, okay? Like it's good intentions, but you're just a kid. You don't understand Goliath's been killing people since he was your age. So just stay in your lane. But I love what David does in his response to Saul. He does exactly what we all should be doing to ourselves when, when we start kind of getting opposition and pushback 
from the world. He starts preaching the truth to himself. Look what he says to Saul in verse 34 through 37. He says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So what's David doing to Saul and to himself? He's preaching. He's preaching to himself and he's reasoning. He's reasoning from the greater down to the lesser. What do I mean by that? Well, David knows that this whole time that he's been out in the shepherd's field, it's always been God protecting him from these vicious animal attacks. And he knows that if God would protect him from those huge lions and bears, that he's confident that now God would act to defeat Goliath when God's own glory and name is at stake. See, David is com- trusts that God is committed to glorifying himself and working for David's good. And so from that reasoning, he gets his courage to fight. That's the kind of like logic we have to use on ourselves every day because the reality is we have something that's even better than what David had to reason with. We have the full, complete, robust picture of the gospel. See, you and I had something way worse standing against us than a lion or a bear or a giant. We had our sin debt to God stacked up against us and we had his wrath ready to spring because of it. But... God's done something. He's worked on our behalf. He's dealt with all of our sin in Christ on the cross. Now we're free from it, and it's not counted against us anymore. In fact, now we're accepted in God's sight as his children. So now we've got to take that reasoning. Now when we're in situations when we feel like the water's like coming up over our necks, we have to start preaching the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves that God did the ultimate work on our behalf. Whatever this situation that you're in now, whether it's it's bad or it's dark or it's hard and you feel like you're never going to get out of it. And I'm not minimizing any any form of suffering when I say this next statement. There's real suffering in this room. Life is painful and it is dark. But I think you have to agree that whatever situation you're in now, it is not as big as an eternity of hell and wrath coming for you. God saved you from that, so you would never have to experience it. And so you have to do what David did. You have to remind yourself that he's not going to leave you now in the struggles of of your life. He's not going to do that. He's working in it. In Romans 8, Paul tells the Roman Christians uh, that God is working everything for their good. Notice he doesn't say that every circumstance is good, but he says that God is is there and he's using it for their good. And then he goes on and he he expounds on the gospel and he gives a good summary of um, why believers can have confidence. And I think one of the best summary statements that he gives is in 
uh, Romans 8, 32. Give me just a second. Lost my bookmark. Sorry, but it's on the screen. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? If God did that, if God worked in that mighty way to save you from your sin and from your wrath and from his wrath and from hell, then why on earth do you think that now, in whatever situation, when you need him the most, would he leave you? So you have to preach to yourself. So let's see how David's confidence plays itself out in action. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So he gets all decked out. Saul gives him his own personal armor. They're like, hey, uh, Goliath has a bronze helmet. Why don't you have a bronze helmet too? So he puts it on, and he's like, I can't do this. I can't go out in any of this. I've never used it before. It's not comfortable. So he takes it off, and he goes out to face Goliath with a staff, some rocks, and a slingshot. And I'm sure Saul and the Israelites are standing there with their jaws on the floor, like, is this kid nuts? Like, he just, he just preached to us and told us he could do this because God was going to be with him. And then he doesn't take anything with him that would be like the main ingredients that you need to fight a war. So he goes out, and then we see how Goliath responds. Goliath thinks it's pretty laughable, too. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. David's response to that, right? That's a terrifying statement is for lack of a better term. I racked my brain to find a term to describe the way David responds. I couldn't. The way he responds is the absolutely most metal way of responding to this. That's the the word that I I thought summed up the best way. Look what David says in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Just pause just for a second in David's statement. It's like he's saying, Goliath, you've got all this stuff. You look terrifying and imposing, but you have defied the living God. Goliath is the one who's in a terrifying place if he would just open his eyes and realize it. He's defied God, not an, not an idol, not a religious concept, not a religious group or a denomination, not a school of thought. He has defied the living God who created everything and who holds everything together. So if, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I want to speak directly to you right now. If you don't know Christ, I just want to take a moment and, and beg you to not find yourself on the same end of this wrath as Goliath is about to find himself. 
you don't have to. Well, there's still a chance to do what Goliath did not do. Goliath could have humbled himself, dropped his weapons, and believed that there was a God in Israel who loved him. You can do that too. You can believe that there's a God that loves you, that he died for you to bring you to himself, and that he's alive right now. The alternative to that is to just wait until he returns in his wrath and his justice to deal with the sin of mankind. So don't think for a minute that you can put this off. You and I have openly defied God with our sin, right? Even the closet sins are open defiance to a holy God. And we stand condemned without the intervention of Christ. So while there is still time today, I, I beg you, please, please be free from that sin debt. Be free from his wrath and enjoy his love and his mercy that can be yours fully by placing your faith in Christ. Jonathan Edwards says this, it's terrifying. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. What are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down? Don't put it off any longer. If you're thinking today, like I, I could just, you don't know what's gonna happen when you leave this room. Let's finish the story out, verse 46 through 47. This is, David keeps going. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So David tells Goliath that right here in just a second when Goliath dies, his defeat isn't going to be because David did anything spectacular. He didn't reach inside himself and find some kind of warrior strength. He tells Goliath, when God acts, it's going to be so that the whole earth knows that there's a God in Israel and that everyone on the battlefield is going to know that God never needed them to begin with. God is completely sovereign over this circumstance, and he's the one that's going to give the victory. David's just there, right? This, nothing spectacular. You realize that there's no difference between David and between you this morning if you're a believer. David has the same Holy Spirit living in him that you have living in you right now. And all David's doing is he's just showing up and acting on what he knows to be true. And he's trusting that God is going to do whatever it takes to glorify himself. So we see this entire story is not about man's ability to overcome something. It's to humble us, and it's to show that God is dedicated to glorifying himself. Everyone hearing and watching this battle would know that there's a God in Israel, a big, living, involved, glorious, wonderful God who fights for weak and scared people who can contribute nothing. So by way of application for us, your personal battles are not meant to elevate you, right? Like I spend way too much time on like YouTube shorts. Sarah makes fun of me all the time because she's like, that's just TikTok. And I'm like, it's, it's not TikTok, it's different. But it is like filled with just like motivational garbage of like reach inside yourself and be a warrior. And, and that's, that's just not true. Your personal battles are not meant to elevate you. Right? They're meant to, to drive you to your knees and to drive you straight to God 
who loves you and who is willing to fight for you and to glorify himself. And I don't want to throw that phrase around arbitrarily. What does that mean? God being committed to his own glory means that he is going to do whatever it takes to show off his goodness and make himself look big and good. And the best place to see that is in the gospel. God's commitment to his own glory is the heart of the gospel because it says that God was so committed to his own glory, to maintaining his perfect justice, his perfect love, but his perfect wrath against sin, that he made a way for himself to be the most glorified. The second person of the Godhead, the Son, willingly bowed under the Father's will in perfect submission so God could forgive you, welcome you, and still be completely just. That is truly glorious. Verse 48, getting towards the end here. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. Verse 53, And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. So David kills Goliath, and the Philistines take off running. And then the Israelites, remember, the guys who were too scared to do anything before, they finally get their courage after seeing God magnify himself. They decide, all right, we can do this. Let's get in the fight. So they run, they get the Philistines, they kill a bunch of them, and then they go and plunder their camp. These guys contributed absolutely nothing to the battle. They see that David has secured their victory. And they're fighting from it. They see what David's done. They see how big God is. And it's from that that they get their motivation. Let's finish out verse 54 through 58. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. So it sounds like that's kind of a flash forward a little bit, right? David's not in Jerusalem yet. That's coming later. Sounds like David took a souvenir of the battle with him back. So he would always remember God's faithfulness. Verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the, ab the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. So it seems like maybe Saul kind of forgot that David worked for him. Calls Abner. He's like, who, who is this kid, right? Like you guys that have kids that play like baseball and football and stuff, like score like a home run or a touchdown. It's like, man, whose kid is that, right? David just cut the head off of a giant. And everybody's like, whose kid is that? So they, they bring him. 
And he, he comes before Saul and he says, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So let's land the plane and let's kind of put all these pieces of the story together now. David was a great man, no doubt, right? He was a great example. But we miss the entire point if we think that we need to leave here today just being David and killing our giants. Here's the actual point. David would go on to be a great king. But if you follow his story through the rest of scripture, he was a really, really messed up sinful person who did some truly awful things. He was not the one that was gonna save the world from their sins and right the wrongs. In fact, in 2 Samuel, God promises David that someone from his own line is coming and is gonna sit on the throne forever. That person, we're told, is the son of David, Jesus. Jesus is the better David. You need him not to just be a David. He's the one who came from Bethlehem, but who was fully committed to God's glory in all circumstances. He is the perfectly sinless shepherd and king who went out all alone to do battle with the accuser while the world stood on the sidelines. He was armed with what looked weak and foolish, a cross. In what looked like a certain defeat, Jesus crushed the accuser's head by willingly dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins, take away our shame, and uphold God's glory. He rose again from the dead, proving that he is the forever king. And now he's given us as believers that same Holy Spirit living inside of us to strengthen us while we go live out the Great Commission. So when you go into daily battles with your sin and life in a broken world, you have to remember that you're victorious in him. All we contribute is we just show up and be faithful. That's it. We don't bring anything else. So as, as, the, as the band comes back up, just kind of think through some practical ways you can do that. First practical way you can do that, be in your Bible. The best place to see God's character and get reminded of that is in his word about himself. Second, be in gospel-shaped community. If you're not part of a church that exposits the Bible and, and encourages you, then I, I beg you to find one that does. Um, and to be part of that community where you can remind people of the gospel and they will remind you of the gospel. And ultimately in all of that, just to remember that God is committed to displaying his glory. That's your highest good, despite the failings of weak, sinful, and scared people. And the clearest way that you can remember that is to go back and preach the gospel to yourself. So let's pray and then we'll worship. Father, uh, thank you for your word this morning, for the promise that you will act to glorify yourself and that you have acted in the gospel pray that now we would just worship you, God, and that if there's people here who, who do not know you, that they, they would decide that today is the day to know you and to worship you and, and to just enjoy what you've done for them. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.